Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the 22nd chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, verse 28 following, and then from the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to Mark. This is that grand scene in the upper room when Jesus gives his farewell discourse to his disciples. It's one of the most precious possessions that we have in all the records of the Gospels. I'm sure that if you lost a loved one and someone had been with that loved one in the parting hours of that one's life, that you would have treasured every word that fell from their lips in those closing hours of life. Well, it is so when Jesus speaks these last words to his disciples. Tonight we're going to think about the transformation of one of his own, one who was very fallible, very impulsive and impetuous, and so much like each one of us, his name is Simon Peter, and we want to think about the transformation that took place in that man's life. He was one of those fleshly people whom Jesus translated into an immortal uh, that shall live as long as the world stands. Now listen to these words. You are the men who have stood firmly by me in my times of trial. And now I vest in you the kingship which my father vested in me. You shall eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones as judges of the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, take heed. Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have come to yourself, you must lend strength to your brothers. Lord, he replied, I am ready to go with you to prison and death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow tonight until you have three times over denied that you know me. Then he went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, accompanied by the disciples. And when he reached the place, he said to them, Pray that you may be spared the hour of testing. He himself withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and began to pray, Father, if it be thy will, take this cup away from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. And now there appeared to him an angel from heaven, bringing him strength. And in anguish of spirit he prayed the more urgently, and his sweat was like clots of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them asleep, worn out by grief. Why are you sleeping, he said. Rise and pray that you may be spared the test. While he was still speaking, a crowd appeared with the man called Judas, one of the twelve at their head. He came up to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When his followers saw what was coming, they said, Lord, shall we use our swords? And one of them struck at the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, Let them have their way. Then he touched the man's ear and healed him. Turning to the chief priests, the officers of the temple police, and the elders who had come to seize him, he said, Do you take me for a bandit, that you have come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? Day after day, when I was with you in the temple, you kept your hands off me. But this is your moment, and the hour when darkness reigns. Then they arrested him and led him away, and they brought him to the high priest's house, and Peter followed at a distance. And they lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat round it, and Peter sat among them. One of the high priest's serving maids came by and saw him there warming himself. And she looked into his face and said, You were there too with this man from Nazareth, this Jesus. But he denied it. I know nothing, he said. I do not understand what you mean. And then he went outside into the porch. And the maid saw him there again and began to say to the bystanders, He is one of them. 
and again he denied it. And again a little later, the bystanders said to Peter, Surely you are one of them. You must be. You are a Galilean. At this he broke out into curses with an oath. And he said, I do not know this man that you speak of. At that moment, while he was still speaking, a cock crew, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and he burst into tears and went outside. Amen. May God bless to our hearts this reading from his word. Let us all bow in prayer. O oh God, our Father, I thank thee for these who have come through the rain tonight to be here in this place of worship. And how blessed and rewarding it shall be for us if we go away from this place tonight knowing that we have heard the voice of Jesus speaking to us from the Holy Scriptures, showing us of the great miracles which he hath wrought in the lives and hearts of men, knowing that he has by no means lost his ancient power, but that he is still able and that he is still desirous of touching our lives and hearts and transforming us. We pray thee, therefore, to take the lesson which we have before us this evening and make it meaningful to all our lives that every thought may be brought captive to Jesus Christ our Lord in whose name we make our prayer. Amen. One rainy day in February 1961, on February the 3rd to be exact, I took a ten-penny ride on a bus from Tottenham Court Road in the city of London out to Highgate Cemetery and sat down and looked at the grave of Karl Marx. I had this little New Testament with me, and I wrote these words inside the flyleaf. I sit today looking at the grave of Karl Marx. Atop a huge cubicle of granite is the massive bronze head, eyes set back in a determined way, but with the cheeks and beard of a Kris Kringle. In gold, bold letters are the words, Workers of all lands unite and then follows the name Karl Marx, and a tablet in white listing the names of those buried there, Jenny von Westphalen, born February 12, 1814, died 2nd of December, 1881, and Karl Marx, born May 5, 1818, died March 14, 1883, and others are listed, and then these words in the bold bronze relief again, the philosophers, have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. Yes, but the thing that's wrong with the world is sin, not economic disorder, and the only way to change that is by the power of Jesus Christ. I read in your hearing a few moments ago of an upper room in which Jesus Christ met with his disciples and in which he gave his farewell. He spoke to them concerning that which would shortly come to pass. The words that he uttered were mysterious and cryptic. They could scarce believe their ears when he began talking about the cup of wine as his blood and about the piece of bread as representing his own flesh. They all knew that he had aroused strenuous opposition, and they all knew that something must be in the offing that was going to be terrible for each one of them. But they still couldn't comprehend the enormity of the crime that was about to be perpetrated. And so, amidst all of these strange and mysterious surroundings, and in all of the fear and tension that was in that room that night, Jesus began to speak with them. He told them many wonderful things that we have treasured and kept in that upper room, 
Karl Marx had worked in an upper room many years later in the city of London, grinding out his Das Kapital and his Communist Manifesto. But Karl Marx thought about trampling men underfoot, and Jesus Christ in another upper room thinks about remaking men, not by some ruthless militaristic system, but by changing their hearts, by working on them as an artist who is from God, who can change them in a wonderful way, in that miraculous way about which Herman was singing just a few moments ago. And the case in point in that transforming grace is the man who is the object of our study this evening, a man by the name of Simon Peter. I confess to you that when I began to read the New Testament for the first time, I was struck mightily by the Apostle Paul, and I have devoted a good bit of my Christian ministry toward studying the life of this man, Paul. To me, he is a man in Christ, so close to Jesus Christ, so much in tune with him, that he is simply beyond me. He is so high that I know that I cannot attain unto the towering heights of this grand apostle. I love Paul. I love Paul deeply. But somehow I can't feel the intimate fellowship with Paul that I can with Peter. When I read about Peter, I can see one who is so much like I am in so many ways. And I'm sure that a great many of you feel the same way. You see a man whom the ancients called one of a choleric temperament. Cholera is a disease that's always associated with tropical hot climates. And it has to do with people who are impetuous and impulsive. And Peter often found his hot heart in his mouth, and he found himself speaking when he should have been listening. Sometimes he spoke the grandest, noblest words that a man could ever utter on the face of the earth and at other times he spoke foolishness and nonsense. When we began to look at him on the pages of the gospel for the first time, you remember that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, first had heard Jesus preach, and then he went and got his own brother and told him to come and see the Messiah. And we think about our Andrew club, those who are one to win one who are happy in the Lord and willing to go out to lay hold upon one person and bring them close to Jesus. And I can tell you that one of the surest tests of your Christian faith will be in your desire to win the people of your own household. They know you. They know how you are and how you do when everyone else is not around. And a very important test of your faith will be your desire to win someone in your own household, your own brother, your own sister, your own child, your own husband, your own wife, your own relative. This can be a great test of faith. Well, Andrew went and fetched Peter and brought him to Jesus. And then Andrew seems to sink into oblivion. From then on, we began to see no other name other than the name of the Lord Jesus himself that appears more on the pages of the four records of the gospel than that of Simon Peter. When you read through the gospel of Mark or the gospel of Luke or Matthew or John, it seems as if Simon Peter is saying something on every page. When Jesus comes one day and sees him fishing and tells him to cast the net onto the right side of the ship and they shall find and they have a great draft of fishes. Peter falls before Jesus and says, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. And then later we see the same Peter when great multitudes have turned back on Jesus and Jesus looks and utters one of the most pathetic speeches that he ever makes on any of the pages of the gospel when he looks into the faces of his disciples and says to them, Will ye also go away? And how we bless God that Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. No one but Peter would be willing on a storm-tossed sea to go out to his Lord. They look out over the boisterous waves and they see a specter coming toward them in the darkness. Everyone else is choked into silence and paralyzed by fright. But Peter can always speak, 
And so Peter says, Lord, if it is you, bid me come to thee on the water. And Jesus says, come ahead. And then Peter ventures out on the deep in that same impulsive step of faith. But his own weaknesses crop out again as he hears the howling of the wind, as he looks at the waves, and then he begins to sink. And all he can say is, save me, Lord. And Jesus lifts him up and brings him into the ship safely. There was a time when someone came to the disciples of Jesus and said to them, does your master pay tribute to Caesar? Does your master pay taxes? And Peter, in his own impulsive way, says, yes, of course he pays taxes. And then he goes to where Jesus is and says, do we pay taxes? You see how childlike he is? So much like so many of us are prone to be. This is Simon Peter. And then you see him in many other places. There was that time at Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus looked into the faces of his disciples and said, Who do the sons of men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And some said, They say that you are Jeremiah. What is it in Jesus that reminded them of Jeremiah? Jeremiah was a weeping prophet who came to rebuke a sinful people. And they said, Some say that thou art Jeremiah. And then someone else said, And others say that you are John the Baptist. What was there in the ministry of Jesus that reminded the sons of men of John the Baptist? I think it must have been his fearless denunciation of sin. Jesus did not fear the face of any mortal man. He spoke against sin when and where it existed, no matter who was there, because he was the truest prophet of God, and because he was God incarnate in human flesh and is God incarnate. Well, Jesus then turned and said, Whom do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the rest of them are baffled by this great question. But Peter gives his grand answer when he says, Thou art the Christ. You are the Messiah, the one who has been promised. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus did not say to Simon Peter, Oh, Peter, you've misunderstood me. I'm only one of the great teachers of religion in the world. He did not say, Oh, no, Peter, I'm not the Son of God. Uh, I'm just another one of the prophets who has come. As many of our religious teachers try to push off on our young people in schools today. No, Jesus gave Peter a theological examination. He said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you get A plus, 100. You're absolutely accurate, Peter. You're accurate in what you say. Blessed art thou, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And you see what Peter has said? This is how noble he can be. But scarcely has he gotten these words out of his mouth until Jesus begins to relate how he must go up to Jerusalem to suffer and die, and no one else would take it upon themselves to rebuke Jesus. None of the disciples would dare do that, save Peter. And Peter said, Far be it from thee, Lord, thou wilt never go up there to suffer and die. And he who had spoken like an angel before now talks like a demon. And Jesus says, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. Once again, when they were in a storm, and the water began to beat over the sides of the ship, and Jesus was asleep in the hinder part of the ship on the helm helmsman's pillow, no one else would go and wake Jesus, but Peter does, and it's Peter alone who would rebuke his Lord by saying, Lord, carest thou not that we perish? And Jesus arose and rebuked the winds and the sea and said, Where is your faith? And then they marveled and said to each other, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey his voice? One day there was a poor woman who was sick of an issue of blood, and she reached out and touched the fringe of Jesus' garment and was miraculously healed. And Jesus said, Who touched me? Well, none other of the disciples of Jesus would dare have said a word except Peter. And Peter said, Lord, in this press of people, do you ask who touched you? 
You see how impulsive he can be? Well, in that last night, this Peter, you remember Jesus had met him and he said, Your name is Simon, shifting sand. Simon, a weed, a reed that is tossed back and forth with the wind, fickle and going in every direction. But I'm going to make you into a rock, Petros. And upon this rock, upon people like you who believe in me, will I build my church in the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Jesus never uses that old name of Simon for this one again until that night in the upper room that I read to you a moment ago. Jesus had begun once more to tell them that it would not be long until he would suffer and die for them. And he had instituted the Lord's Supper. And do you know how Jesus looked around that circle? And he said, one of you here will betray me. And they each one began to ask, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? How we ought to be that humble with our faith. Lord, is it I? Will I betray you? Now, Peter, Peter is bolder than the rest of them. And Peter could not speak for Philip, and Andrew sits there, and he cannot speak even for his own brother Andrew. And he does not know about John, but he thinks he does know about himself. And so he says, Lord, everyone else in this room might betray you, but here's one who will never betray you. I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus listens to the strong wind blow because he knows that this man is impulsive. And like a father who looks at a child whom he knows is wayward and has his weaknesses, Jesus says, Oh, Simon, Simon, I know you so much better than you know yourself. I know that before this very night is over, you will have denied that you know me. And Peter must have been offended by this. Jesus said, Satan hath desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And Satan is always looking for anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus that he might sift them as wheat. There's one thing about the sifting process of Satan that you may be dead certain of. Satan will always sift out the good that is in you and leave only the huff in the dirt, in the filth, that which is useless and of no value at all. He's always sifting. He's always trying to take out of you that which is good in Christ's life. And he was about to commence his ministry of sifting upon Peter. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. But Jesus said, I have prayed the Father. And the King James, in its quaint way, says, And when thou art converted, go and strengthen thy brethren. But I like the New English version better at this point, because it says, But when you have come to yourself, go and strengthen your brethren. Those are the same words that are used by the prodigal son when he is off in the pig pens of sin. You remember how out there he began to waste away as Satan always starves us. And the scriptures say that he came to himself. Well, that's the same word that Jesus uses here to Peter. And he says, and when you have come to yourself, go and strengthen your brethren. And that's wonderful. And then you know the rest of the story how that they go out from this upper room and make their way to that familiar place of prayer where Jesus oftentimes prayed. And Jesus took with him those three who were close to him. How close are you to Jesus? Jesus took Peter, first of all, and he took James, and he took John, and he went away from the other disciples. Judas had already made his way to sell his master for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus, with all of the agony and burden of the sins of the world weighing upon his soul, goes with these three to a place of prayer, separate from the other disciples. And then he leaves these three and says to them, Pray. Watch and pray. Pray that ye enter not into temptation. 
and then he goes off and begins to fall upon his face, prostrate before God in prayer. And as he prays to God, he sweats, as it were, great clots of blood. And his own disciples slept all this while. They slept. How could they have slept? How could they be so spiritually numb and insensitive to the burden that their own master was going through? Do you have any kinship with Jesus Christ? Do you feel the travail of his soul, the pain that he feels when he sees people who are outside of him, who are lost, who are going the wrong way? Or do you want only this comfortable kind of religion that is just casually related to Christ, but is not bearing anyone else's burden, but seeks Christianity only for the emotional consolation and comfort that it can give in a time of stress or loss. Well, these men failed Jesus then. They fell asleep. And Jesus wrestled there before God about that cup. And he said, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And then he came back and he looked at them and he uttered those pathetic words, could you not watch with me one hour? I think Peter's downfall began at that place where he neglected prayer. I would be very much surprised if I'm not speaking to someone in this sanctuary this evening who at one time in your life came close to God and determined that you would be faithful in your prayers and in your reading of the scriptures that you might grow in grace. But God Almighty knows your heart and you know right now as God can see through you like a pane of glass that it's been a long time since you really and truly prayed. It's been a long time since you put anyone else's name on a prayer list and prayed that God would lead that person to faith in Christ. If you're a Sunday school teacher, do you pray for the pupils in your Sunday school class? If you're a deacon or an elder, do you pray for your church? Do you pray for this pastor and his work here? When you come into this chapel on Sunday morning, do you pray that God will speak through you, through the minister who is here? Have you been praying for these meetings? Have you telephoned anyone else to ask them to come here? Have you had any real burden at all about it? Peter's downfall started when he neglected his time with God. He became spiritually dull and he began to fade away. And in their dazed and sleepy condition, they heard the excitement of voices coming through the darkness and they looked up and saw flickering torches coming that way. And they raised up quickly and then they could not believe their eyes. They saw Judas coming and he went straight up to Jesus and kissed him. And then the soldiers of the high priest guard reached out and took hold of Jesus. And then Peter, in that same old impulsive tradition of his life, grabs hold of his sword and slashes away at this high priest servant and cuts off one of his ears. Now, I told some of the people here the other day that you can be certain of one thing, that Peter really intended to kill that man. If you can think about how close that ear is to your head and the fact that he let loose with such a blow that it severed that man's ear away. It would have only had to been just a little bit further to have killed him. And Peter meant business. And the sweetest old Christian lady I ever knew out in West Texas, I think the greatest Christian I ever knew, period, a grand old school teacher, and she told me one day when we were reading this passage together that she thought it was very cute. I didn't understand her word, cute, about Peter. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, he reminds me of a little boy. And robbers have broken into the house and have taken hold of his father. And he runs and starts pounding away at the legs of the robbers, oblivious to his own safety. And she said it was a brave act on Peter's part. Like a great many of us, he had the right motive, but he did the wrong thing. He had the right motive, but he did the wrong thing. Now, I told the folks the other day that I'm sure that by the time I get on the joy gift that I will have whacked off many a person's ear by 
doing an impulsive thing, a right motive but the wrong thing, Jesus promptly repaired the damage. He rebuked Peter for what he had done, told him to put up his sword again, and Peter went off into the olive trees, bewildered by the actions of his Lord, and then looked at these people taking him away, walking away through the garden. I've been there in the garden of Gethsemane. I've seen some of those olive trees that they tell us were probably even growing at the time that Jesus was there. Baffled by all that was taking place, he watches these men march off with his Lord, and he simply can't take it in anymore. He is bewildered and confused by it all. He rushes away into the darkness. The leaves of the trees and the branches tear at him, and he sees the flickering torches go. Then he decides to turn back, and at least he'll follow, even if it is at a distance, and see what happens to his Lord. And so he begins to pad along after these soldiers, watching them wind their way into the city of Jerusalem, to Caiaphas' palace, the high priest's palace, and then they go inside. Now, I've already told you that the uh, palaces of the wealthier class of people, such as this high priest would have been, had an outside gate, and inside there was a little courtyard, and there was often a, a, a stairway inside that led up in a banister and a railing in two levels. There was usually a servant girl, a slave girl, who kept the outside gate. And this slave girl noticed Peter when he came in, and she could see that he looked frightened and scared. And she could somehow sense that he didn't have any business being around there. It was cold, it was early in the morning, there was a chill. And some of the high priest guards had gotten together a, some coals in a brazier and were warming themselves by the fire. And Peter crept over towards where this fire was and the flickering flames lighted up the face and his features. And this girl looked at him and pointed her finger toward him and said, You were also with him. And then Peter begins his denial. And you know how he begins it? The Greek is very good at this point. He says, actually, I don't know what you're talking about. Huh? What did you say? Now that's a little lie. That's the way big lies start. They start with little lies. So often I have to get hold of my boys at home. I call them, I tell them to do something, and they say, huh? And they heard me. I say, don't say, huh? You heard me. You know what I said. Now what did I say? And I make them tell me back. That's the way it is. If you're close to the Lord and the Lord speaks, don't say to the Lord, huh? Don't, don't act dumb about it. Now, this was the beginning of his lying here. He said, huh, what did you say? What were you talking about? He stammers. He makes it look like he doesn't understand what he's talking about. He didn't just come out and point blank say that he had never seen Jesus at this point. But when she says this, he says, huh, what did you say? I don't know what you're talking about. And then he goes away a little bit. He was standing by that fire, but his soul was shivering. And then pretty soon, probably this same mocking slave girl comes through there again. And there's nothing that can get a man down like some little girl who gets it into her head to make fun of him or shame him. And many a great man has fallen because of this. And she looks at him and says, I know who you are. You were with that Galilean. And the second time, Peter says flatly, I don't know the man. Now, Peter would have left, but he wanted to find out what was taking place. Jesus was upstairs in Caiaphas' office, if you please. He was up there being interrogated by the high priest. And he hated to leave. He wanted to find out what they were going to do with his master. And so he hung around still a little longer. And then finally, either this same servant or some other servant came up to him 
who had observed his speech and said, you have that guttural accent of a Galilean. You must be one of them. And this time, Peter's words were with an oath. And we read this only in the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark was dictated to John Mark by Simon Peter. And he wrote it down. And Peter tells this on himself. He's the only one of the evangelists who tells it on himself. He denied him with a vehement oath which said in effect, May I be damned if I ever heard of the man. Well, these people were startled by such vehement language. His faith had grown livid and purple. And he had screamed out this oath. And they drew back and looked at one another, dumbfounded that he should have spoken this way. And just at the time that he ripped out that oath, there was a, a commotion, a noise from upstairs. And he turned and looked toward the high priest's office. And just as he did, Jesus was coming down those stairs and he looked at Peter. And their eyes met each other. And out in the background, the cock crew. And that shrill sound of the crowing of the cock and that look of Jesus into his eyes melted his heart and he burst into tears and went running out into the darkness outside. That's what happened in that one dramatic moment. The Lord turned and looked upon Peter and he burst into tears and went outside in the darkness and doubtless the people were all by this time laughing at what was taking place. Here was the big burly fisherman's worst hour. Here was the time when he had shown his worst side. Now I want to say this, that look of the Lord Jesus is all that saved Peter from being another Judas. I'm convinced in my soul that Simon Peter would have gone out that night and found himself a juniper tree and tied a noose tied around it and thrown it over a limb and hanged himself in despair had it not been for the look that Jesus gave him in that hour. Jesus looked, and the look of Jesus was not wasted. He could remember that look, and it haunted him. Perhaps John was there in the high priest's courtyard, and he followed Peter away into the darkness, trying to assure him that Jesus would not cast him away. And Peter went out into the darkness and wept bitterly. But he could not get that look of Jesus out of his eyes. He had used language such as he had not used since he first met Jesus. He hadn't spoken that way in years. And now he had failed him so miserably. But still he knew that somehow there was hope even for him. And even in his despair, he kept thinking about that. You know, I think that Peter must have thought about all of the looks that he ever received from Jesus. I think that he thought about the first time that he ever saw Jesus when he was down by the seaside mending his net. And Jesus came and looked into his face and said, Come after me, big fisherman, and I'll make you to be a fisher of men. I think that he thought about all of the times that he had gazed into that face and he was broken. He was broken, and we would have had another Judas on our hands. And if you are tempted to despair as far as your faith is concerned, and you feel weak and that you have betrayed your Lord, then don't let the look of Jesus be wasted on you. One time the distinguished Archbishop of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris was preaching a great sermon. And in the course of his sermon, he told with great eloquence how once three young servicemen, sailors, had come into that very cathedral, that they were gay and godless and worldly, and that two sailors bet the other sailor that he would not go to the priest who was hearing confession 
and make a bogus confession to him. Go and make up a lie and make confession to him. And the priest heard their plotting. And the man went into the confessional booth and he reeled off some story. And when he had gotten to the end of his confession, the priest told him, he said, you know, with every confession that I hear, there is always a penance that must be performed. And the penance that I give to you is that you must go out of this confessional booth and up to the high altar and look into the face of the crucified one and say out loud, as loud as you can speak, all this you did for me and I don't care a damn. And he said, that's your penance. The young man came out of the confessional booth and he reported to his companions that he had fulfilled his bargain. And they said, oh no, no, you haven't fulfilled it at all. You, you must go and do the penance and then we will pay you the wager that we owe you. And so he brazenly walked up to the high altar and he looked up at the figure representing Jesus nailed to a cross and he said, all this you did for me and I, 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 and he couldn't speak anymore. He couldn't say those words. And the archbishop at this point in his sermon told that great congregation in Notre Dame Cathedral, he said, I was that young man. And that's when I met Christ. That's when I was converted. And when you look into the face of Jesus, things can happen to you. He can make you what you ought to be. The crowing of that cock never, never, never ceased to be heard in Peter's ears. I think that all of his life long, he remembered the crowing of that cock in that night. And then it's wonderful to read how Mark, you remember Peter dictated the Gospel of Mark to John Mark, right at the close of the Gospel of Mark, when the glorious resurrection of our Lord has come, and the women have gone early in the morning to the sepulcher, do you remember what the angel says? Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is risen from the dead. Jesus put that in because he loved this man, and he wanted him to know that he was worth salvaging and saving. Jesus cared for one single individual. Jesus cares for you. Peter was hurt because he had denied the highest love that he had ever known in his life, because he had denied his Lord. And if you have denied your Lord, then you may be sure that the message is for you too. Go tell my, my disciples and John or Mary or Jim or whoever you are that I am risen from the dead. That his resurrection had assured them that God who brought him back from the dead could also make them over again. The next time that we see Peter and Jesus meeting together in any conversation that's recorded takes place there on the Sea of Galilee when Peter had determined that he would take some of his friends and go fishing for a while. He said to some of them, come and let's go back and fish for a little while. They went down to the sea and they took their old boat and they lifted up the wet ropes of the tackle and they cast it out into the sea and they fished all night long and they had not taken anything. And I think that while they were out there fishing and the whole night was wearing away and they saw the moon go from one side of the sky to the other and the stars fade away and the dawn began to streak, that Peter was somehow thinking and yearning for his Lord once more. And then early in the morning they saw a figure on the beach. They heard a voice call out to them in very simple, artless language, boys, have you caught anything? And they said, no. And then he said, cast the net on the right side of the ship and you shall find 
And I think that the reason that Jesus saw an earlier miracle reperformed at this point was to show them who it was on the beach. And when they caught that miraculous draft of fishes, Peter remembered it, and he shouted when he heard John say, It is the Lord Peter, girt his fisher's coat about him, he dived into the sea, and he swam quickly to the beach. He wanted to see his Lord. He drew up that great net of fishes, and Jesus, in his own thoughtful way, had built a fire of coals and had laid some fish thereon. He was going to feed them. He knew they would be hungry and tired. While they were sitting about that fire at that wonderful breakfast, the great prayer breakfast, you might call it, Jesus looked at Peter, and he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, for a long, long time, I couldn't understand the meaning of those words until I started remembering what Peter had said in that upper room. He said, though James and John and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas and Nathaniel deny you, I won't deny you. I'll never deny you, and he did. And Jesus said to him there on the beach, Simon, son of John, do you love me more? and Thomas and Philip and James and John and Nathaniel. Do you love me more than they do? And Peter was humble this time, not the proud, boasting, arrogant Peter that we saw that night in the upper room, thoroughly humbled by his own failure. He said, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lamb. Then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me more than thee? More than these love me? And Peter answered in words that would to God every person here could say tonight from their hearts, if Jesus came into the sanctuary and looked you straight in the face and said to you, do you love me? And you could reply, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Well, Peter could, and he did. Now, Jesus said he was going to build his church on this type of person. And if you have ever seen a transformation, all you have to do is turn to the book of Acts and read it. Read when the Holy Spirit has at last come upon his people and the transformation that's taken place in the life of them. And look out there at one who is preaching to these same servants who were there and heard him deny his Lord, to the great high priest himself, to the Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross, and see who's preaching. Who's afraid now? It's Peter plus at Pentecost, and he's not afraid of anyone. And he preaches for the Lord Jesus in such great power that thousands of souls are converted and are baptized then and there. He preaches so wonderfully that they have to go and put him in jail. You can read it all in the book of Acts, how that one night he is asleep between two men, chained to them asleep. I've often thought about that because I get so upset when someone criticizes me for this or that and I can't sleep. And here Peter is asleep with chains on his wrist, not knowing but what the next day he might be put to death. You see how God transformed him? That's Peter. He's transformed now. That's the rock. And you can be a rock just like him, and I can too. And Peter preached Judas' funeral sermon on Solomon's porch. And do you know, I think that Peter, all his life long when he preached, and if Peter was here tonight, I think he would say to every one of us, he would say, listen to me. I don't care how poor a disciple you've been. You couldn't have done any worse than I've done. I don't know who you are or what you are or what you've done, Peter would say. But look at me and look how the Lord changed me. And he can still change you too. And he will. Accept him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Let us bow in prayer.
Our time is all gone now, and I'm just going to give a simple invitation and ask you to raise your hand if you've never accepted Christ as Savior. Then if you'd like to, you may speak with me or with the pastor of the church following the benediction. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, he said, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. He who received and transformed Simon Peter is here tonight, and he'll receive you. And if you've never accepted him, and you want the prayers of a Christian friend, would you just slip your hand up and say, Pray for me. I want to accept Christ tonight as my Savior. Is there anyone anywhere? Just raise your hand quickly and then take it down again. Yes, I see your hand. Is there anyone else before we close? Yes. Let me ask this. I think there are a great many of us who sense in our own hearts that we haven't been walking very close to the Lord. If you really feel the need of rededication in your life, would you raise your hand and say, pray for me, I want to rededicate my life tonight to Christ. Would you raise your hand? Yes, God bless you, thank you. And you, and you, and you, yes, yes. Is there anyone else? Yes, God bless you. No one's going to embarrass you. No one's going to ask you to do anything else. Is there anyone anywhere? Just have that satisfaction in your own heart that you're taking a fresher hold on holy things. Just slip your hand up and say, pray for me. I want to rededicate my life. Yes, God bless you. I'm glad that we waited. O God, our Father, thou hast seen the hearts of these who have raised their hands. Thou knowest our need. Wilt thou graciously accept us once more in thy love? Wilt thou help us to walk more closely with thee? Wilt thou grant that in these concluding hours of our worship together, this last service tomorrow, that the Holy Spirit may speak to us and help us to be burdened to witness to someone else about Christ. Wilt thou help us to be changed from fickle, shifting sand to solid rock? For Jesus' sake, amen. Will you stand for the benediction? <clears throat>